Well, this morning we're going to conclude the series we've been in on the attributes of God, attributes and action. We've been looking at various characteristics of God's nature and trying to weave those into the stories of Scripture so that we can actually see those characteristics illustrated. So if you're a guest with us this morning, you're catching in, catching the, the tail end of the sermon series this morning. But it does tie into Christmas because the attribute that we're going to consider this morning is the truth of God. God is true. The statement that we've been using as sort of an explanatory statement for the entire series has been the catechism question number four of the Westminster Catechism, which is, answers the question, what is God? And the, the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so we've considered all the attributes leading up to the final one this morning, which is truth. And it's captured in Pilate's question, what is truth? Well, I hope to answer that very question this morning, because according to John 18, 37, which I'll read for us again, Jesus gives us the answer to that question. He said, for this purpose, I was born Christmas. And for this purpose, I have come into the world Christmas. Why, Jesus? Why were you born? Why did you come into the world? To bear witness to the truth. So that's what we're going to consider this morning. The truth of God, born witness of by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. One person who had a hard time with this statement of Jesus, that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth, was C.S. Lewis. He grew up feeling this irreconcilable tension in his own soul between what he saw as a love for literature and a love for rational thinking. He loved both. He loved the mysteries and the myths and the fantasies, and he also loved logic. And in the Christ story, he found those to be totally at odds with each other. And this inner conflict between imagination and reason led him to reject the Christian faith that he was exposed to uh, from his childhood. While stories like the parting of the Red Sea and the virgin birth and walking on water and rising from the dead, these were all amusing to him. They seemed far-fetched and even irrelevant and not at all squaring with science and reason or anything that would resemble actual logic. However... An evening conversation with his friend and fellow writer, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was the author of the Lord of the Rings series, that changed all of that. Because Tolkien explained on that evening how imagination and reason are deeply reconciled in the gospel narratives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those stories of Jesus' life that we have recorded for us in the first four books of the New Testament. And Tolkien's comments said that these gospels had all of the qualities of both great human storytelling as well as recording true events. And it was with that comment that Lewis began to see that the satisfaction he had always received from great myths and fantasy stories was just a taste of the true and greatest story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And from that point forward, Lewis's perspective was transformed. And instead of being a mythical, untrue escape from reality, then all the best stories became invitations into the reality of the true story. And both J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis himself, when they wrote 
fiction, they wrote fiction from the position of telling a story within the true story that God himself is writing in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the Jesus story for Lewis, as it was for Tolkien, had become the story beneath all stories. Similarly, after several months enduring a crisis of faith in his own right, pastor and philosopher Francis Schaeffer told his wife Edith that he believed there was one reason and one reason only to become a Christian, because it's true. And that's the only reason. And that was the reason that Lewis gave for why he became a Christian. He wanted so much to not have to be a Christian, but he could not when he was confronted with the truthfulness of the claims of Christ. What is true? Pilate asks. The Roman governor found himself asking this very question that morning. A group of Jewish leaders were standing outside of his palace and demanding his attention. A mob was forming. They brought with them a prisoner, a man from Nazareth, who was named Jesus. And Pilate asked them what their problem was. Verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? They didn't quite know how to answer that question, trying to figure out some way to change Jesus or change the narrative or charge Jesus with a crime, but they couldn't, so they just lied. They just threw up a smoke screen, claiming that he was a criminal, but they never specified what his crime was. We read in verse 30, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Okay. Pilate wasn't dumb, though. He knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to them. That's what Matthew 27, 18 records. So he told the priests to judge Jesus according to their own laws. But that suggestion was not satisfactory. We read in verse 31 again, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That was true. And it also revealed their motives. They didn't care about the truth. They just wanted Christ dead. The only problem is that they didn't have the authority to execute him. That's why they needed Pilate. And by this point, Pilate knew that dispersing this mob wouldn't be easy. So in order to get to the bottom of what happened, he brings Jesus in. Pilate wanted to know the truth. What have you done? And when he was on trial for his very life, Jesus said, for this reason I was born. For this reason I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Brothers and sisters, this is what Christmas confronts us with. One main question, why did Jesus come? And over the course of his time on earth, he answered that question in a number of different ways. But the one that we're going to consider this morning is that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus came to tell us the truth. I don't see how a Christmas text could be more relevant for the time in which we even find ourselves. Can I find a person to tell me the truth? Turn on the TV, no one's telling me the truth. 
I look on social media, no one's telling me the truth. I talk to people, I wonder if they're telling me the truth. What's the truth? That's what I'd like to think about this morning. I want us to shut out all the distractions that come with the joys of the season and just focus in for a few minutes and ask the Lord Jesus, would you please tell me the truth? Would you please tell me the truth? Tell me the truth about who I am. Tell me the truth about who you are. Tell me the truth about the world that I'm living in. And he will. And he does this morning. And may we be of those that he says are of the truth. That is, we hear his voice. Are we willing to hear what he says? That's always been the challenge. Three points this morning, which I think are very basic and just form the outline of the sermon and are the outline presented to us that Jesus himself gives us in John 18, 37. There is such a thing as a truth. Jesus came to bear witness to it. And everyone who is of the truth listens to him. Those are our three points. First of all, there is such a thing as truth. Truth just means reality. It's the way anything really is. Truth is not how things may appear to be, much less how they appear to me. It's not even what we may want to be. Truth is whatever God says it is. Truth is what God says about reality because God is truth. Truth does not originate in this world. It comes from outside of this world and is given into this world by the God who created this world. It doesn't come from the self-conceived opinions of people, the traditions of men, or any culture around us. Truth comes from above, from the God of truth. It comes exclusively from the mind of God himself. Truth is whatever God says anything is. But we live in a culture that is more marked by Pilate's take than Jesus' take. In 2016, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. The official definition reads as the following, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. That's where we are. We're living in a culture that's less shaped by facts and more appeals to emotion. And in a post-truth world, feelings win over facts. And personal subjectivity matters more than objective reality. And today, we're swimming in post-truth water and trying with increasing difficulty to hold society together when even basic agreements over the nature of truth and reality have become contested. And it's into our modern post-truth world that Jesus says, for this reason, I have come into the world. For this reason, I was born to bear witness to the truth. Jesus believes there is a truth, capital T, truth, that we don't create but discover that we don't control, 
but that we acknowledge. There is truth, truth that everyone should believe. There is truth, truth that comes from outside the world and gives meaning to the world. Truth that doesn't just come to us and ask us for our interpretation of it. The world doesn't make this truth. It doesn't shape or change this truth. It is the truth, not a truth for me, which may be a different truth for you. It is the truth for all of us, unchanging, absolute. So the first implication of Christmas is that there is truth in the world. Truth exists. We don't create it, we find it. We have no power to change it to our tastes. The written word of God isn't to be subjectively understood by the whims of any of us, any individual. Doesn't mean one thing to one person and something else to another person. Rather, the most important truths have been made known with black and white words that can be parsed and defined and understood. It's expressed in actual words that can be studied and interpreted. Truth is made known to us by God in the specific words of Scripture. And these words have a clear definition. They have a precise meaning. God communicates with objective words that can be understood. Otherwise, He's not a God of truth. The truth is never vague or indefinite. God does not speak in ambiguity or generality that cannot be assigned a clear meaning. Truth is never uncertain or unclear, but it's precise and exact and explicit and factual and rational and crystal clear. However, in a post-truth world where we don't believe in such things, what fills the gap? Well, what fills the gap when capital T truth is no longer acknowledged is the same thing that filled the gap in our passage. Power. Look at verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told him, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. In the absence of capital T, truth, what we are left with is mob rule. The opinion of the ungodly majority seeking to enforce their morality by power on the populace. The kingdom Jesus is bringing doesn't result in that kind of activity. He told us, look at verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. Jesus' kingdom doesn't breed fighting. The world's kingdoms do. And this is why we see fighting all around us. Because the kingdoms of the world are filled with it. And our earthly kingdom is no less the same. It's why we see the rampant vitriol in the world today. Because with the loss of truth, all you have is power. And with power comes the desire of the populace to demand of the government reinforcement of our evil wills. The angry mob wasn't the only one seeking to exercise their power at the expense of truth. Pilate was as well. In verse 6 we read, 
the following. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Exasperated by the Jews' complaints and unnerved by Jesus' reticence to speak, Pilate retreated back to his own power, didn't he? When he called Jesus in again and said, I have authority to put you to death. Power. And Jesus said, you'd have no power at all if my father didn't give it to you. Pilate retreated back to his own power, reminding Jesus of the great authority that he had accompanied his, that accompanied his position. Perhaps if confronted with so great an authority, Jesus might concede under the pressure. Yet while most prisoners would plead their case, scream for mercy, and argue against their opponents, Jesus just stood there, steadfast, silent, and this absolutely infuriated Pilate. It was part of the way Jesus demonstrated his greater authority. Jesus could have recognized Pilate's power. He could have spoken with him privately or sought to reason with him until he saw the merits of his case and the unjust accusations of the crowd. Jesus could have totally convinced him. But such a response would ultimately have been an admission that Pilate was really in charge and that Jesus' future lay in the hands of an earthly king. So Jesus responded instead by challenging Pilate's claim to authority. Jesus was showing that he came to bear witness to the truth. So that's our first point. There is truth. Jesus believed it. He came to bear witness to it. And that's our second point. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. See, being co-equal with the Father, Jesus can bear witness to the truth because he is the truth. He is perfectly situated to bear witness to the truth because in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the truth. Not a truth, but the truth. His claim to be the truth means that he possesses an exclusive monopoly on all truth claims. Anything that's true, Jesus says, that's mine. The definite article the before truth means that he is the truth, the only truth. There is no truth outside of him. He alone testifies to the truth. He alone gives shape to the true reality of all things. Revelation 1.5, He is the faithful witness. The Amen, the faithful and true witness. So what is the truth that Jesus came to bear witness to? Well, in an ironic twist, Pilate tells us twice himself. And I want to show you the two things Jesus came to bear witness to represented in the words of Pilate. First of all, Verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 5. Notice what Pilate says. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. That's true. That's true. Behold the man. Jesus is the perfect man. The soldiers have whipped him and lacerated his skin. They've mocked him. They've placed a crown of thorns on his head. They put him in a purple robe. And now he stands before Pilate, before the crowd, before us. And Pilate says those words, Behold the man. Look at him. Here's the guy. How right he was. John began his gospel with these words in the beginning. 
Only this time, the story that John is telling us is the story of a new creation. The Word who was with God and was God. God is the Creator who makes the sun and the moon and the stars and the birds and the fish and the plants and the animals. And on the sixth day of creation, God made man in His own image. He created Adam and named him and commanded him to rule wisely over the good world that God had made. He breathed into his nostrils and Adam became a living being. Here he was, the glorious fulfillment of all of God's creative plans and activities, a real, live human being. You can imagine God saying on that Friday, admiring his handiwork, behold the man. The masterpiece of God's creative work. And not long after that, though, you know the story. God speaks again. Adam, where are you? God found Adam. And Adam found God as a judge. He was hiding because he was naked. Who told you that you were naked? God says to Adam. What have you done? Adam was ashamed of himself, and the result of his sin and guilt and shame would be the thorn-infested ground that would make his work difficult. He was created as the pinnacle of God's creation, the only creature, along with Eve, to bear God's image. But as the result of sin, he would be cursed to till the ground and fight against the thorns. But also in the garden, as we saw last week, God promised to Eve a son, a man, a true human being, who would come to crush the head of that crafty serpent. A second Adam who would come to put right what had went wrong under the first Adam's rule. The Word would take on flesh and dwell among us, live like us, live with us. All his life would be preparation for his death. And he entered this world with the express purpose of one day leaving it. So that in leaving this world, we could enter his. And it was on another Friday morning, 2,000 years ago, that Jesus stood before the people and heard, Behold, the man. It was the sixth day of the week, the day God created man. And now the second Adam is standing there, undoing the first Adam's sin. Adam was always meant to wear a crown. And now Jesus would wear one. Adam had been sentenced to toil among the thorns. And now Jesus would have those very thorns twisted and driven into his forehead. Adam was ashamed of his failure and tried to hide behind fig leaves. Now Jesus would appear and wear a purple robe and literally be stripped naked in front of those who mocked him. The hands of humanity that reached out for the forbidden fruit were the fists that beat his precious face. Behold the man. Pilate didn't know what he was saying, but John the Apostle did. Jesus is the perfect man. He is the second Adam who came to fulfill God's purpose. Just look at how the Jewish leaders sought to crucify him according to their law. God sentenced to death the sons of Adam for believing the lie of the serpent, but here... The sons of Adam sentenced to death the Son of God who tells the truth. They had it all backwards. This is not just a man who made himself to be the Son of God. This is the Son of God who made himself to be a man. Behold the man. But notice another truth that Jesus bears witness to. In the very lips of Pilate himself, we read in verse 14 of chapter 19. 
Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, that's noon. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Behold your king. Behold the man. Behold your king. Jesus is the perfect man. Jesus is the true king. They said, Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. We need a king. Someone to put things right. Someone to lead us. What they failed to realize is that they had a king. And they didn't like him. Everyone has a king. We all live according to the dictates of someone or something. It may be money, it may be pleasure, it may be reputation, it may be power. It's mostly just ourselves. But make no mistake, we have a king. The only question is who should be king? The Jews didn't see in Jesus the kind of king they wanted. And there are many people today who don't see in Christ the kind of king they want. And so they decided he should be killed. And if they couldn't get Pilate to crucify Jesus by claiming he made himself God, perhaps they'll convince Pilate by claiming Jesus made himself king. A rival to Caesar. A rival to Pilate himself. But Jesus did not make himself a king. He was already a king. He was a king before he came. He was a king as he stood before Pilate. And he's the king of kings today. And that's why it's no surprise that Pilate again says more than he realizes. Behold the man... Behold your king. And a sign is placed over Jesus on the cross that says king of the Jews in three languages. Aramaic, Greek, Latin. Greek was the language of the world. Latin was the language of the empire. Aramaic was the language of God's people. The statement hanging over Jesus' head is true. He is the king of the Jews. And he's being presented for the whole world to see. Remember what day it is. It's the day of Passover. This was the time of day when the lambs were being slaughtered. In the book of Revelation, we're introduced to a lamb on a throne. The lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world, is the king who deserves to sit on the throne as judge of all people. He is the lion and the lamb. The image of the lion's great authority and the lamb's great meekness, the weakness of a bleeding lamb and the strength of a powerful lion. That image is what we see at the cross. In this moment, Caesar looks strong and Jesus looks weak. But through his weakness, Jesus will conquer the world. No one's worshiping Caesar today. But billions are bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. Behold your king, Pilate says. Look at King Jesus long enough and you'll come to terms with a radically different conception of power. Caesar ruled by conquering lands and subjugating people. Jesus ruled by conquering sin and death and the grave, and freeing people. This king bore the full weight of God's anger and judgment toward the evil of the world, and then he rose again to new life, the lamb slain for our redemption. Behold your king. Christmas means, dear ones, that Jesus came, was born into the world to bear witness to the truth. What is that truth? Well, it's found, as we saw, in the lips of Pilate, that Jesus is the perfect man and the true king. He was born to save us from our sins and born to rule us as our Lord. It's that truth that Jesus bears witness to, even in the very words of Pilate. That's why Jesus says, you've said so. You have verified the very thing that you say you are not verifying. 
Jesus is the true man. He is the true, perfect man. He is the true king. Point number three. There is such a thing as truth. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth that he's perfect man, true king. Thirdly, and finally, everyone who is of the truth hears, hears his voice. This is what Jesus says in John 18, 37. This is the conclusion for all of us. This is the application he makes for Christmas. This is what he comes speaking to every single one of us this morning. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. See, Jesus places all of us in one of two categories. Of the truth, or by implication, not of the truth. People of the truth, people of the lie. Sons of God, sons of the devil. In other words, we are people of the truth, or we are people of the lie. And there's no in-between. We either believe the truth or we believe lies. We believe the truth or we believe lies. What's the difference? Do we listen and heed the words of the witness of the truth, Jesus Christ? That's the difference between whether we believe truth or whether we believe lies. It's who we're listening to. If we listen to Jesus, we're people of the truth. If we listen to others or ourselves or those who aren't Jesus, we're listening to lies, potentially, if they don't accord with the words of Christ. So Pilate and the crowd weren't listening to the truth as he stood right in front of them. Pilate sought to deflect the truth on the crowd, and the crowd sought to deflect the truth back on to Pilate, back and forth to each other they went. And that may be where some of us are this morning. You may be somewhat non-committal about your relationship to Jesus, not because you think he's untrue, but just because you don't know if he is. You live with a suspended judgment on the matter. And this is what we're all naturally do with the truth. We are naturally people who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, as Paul says in Romans 1. That's all of us by nature. And when the truth of God comes into conflict with how we want to live, in our rebellion against our creator, then we exchange it for a lie. We believe a lie in order to live how we want. Instead of worshiping the creator and submitting to him, we worship and serve the creature, which is mostly ourselves as the creature, and submit to ourselves, and so we resist the truth. But why do we do that? Why do we resist the truth? Because deep in our souls, we have the remnants of Adam's sin in us. That's why. We have the desires to be the masters of our own destiny, the truth too often gets in the way of that. And truth stands outside of us and above us, and truth doesn't bow the knee to our preferences, no matter what Orwellian language we adopt, euphemisms we deploy, or pronouns we insist upon. As John Webster wrote, the truth about the world is something over against us, something that we cannot subdue. Truth cannot be commanded. Instead, it commands us. It forces us to acknowledge the world and we within the world are what they are, independent of us. Truth blocks invention. When we reach the truth, we reach the limits of our wills. And it's because truth is that kind of barrier against us that we have to find ways of circumventing it. We have to flee from the truth. We flee because the remnants of Adam's sin remain in us. And we don't like the truth. It's what our sin does to us. It's what our condition does to us, but it's exactly 
the condition that Jesus came to free us from. But before we get to the deliverance, let's talk about how we flee. How do we flee the truth? Well, one way we circumvent the truth is by relativizing it based on our experiences. That's why we hear a lot these days about speaking your truth or living your truth, as if the truth is just a synonym for perspective or experience. Not the same thing. Should we make room for sharing our perspectives and recounting our experiences? Absolutely. We just shouldn't call them truth. But if our tendency is to adorn truth, which adjectives like my and your, and never the, then we're violating the very definition of truth to begin with. In a world full of illusions and Jedi mind tricks, these are not the droids you're looking for. In a world full of such illusions under the sway of the evil one, the father of lies, praise the Lord for the son of God who comes to bear witness to the truth. He unmasks all of our human pretensions, sounds the death knell to hypocrisy, and exposes the forces of destruction that wreak havoc in our lives and spoil God's good world. His words shock, his voice offends, but he comes to save sinners and he doesn't bear false witness. Maybe you're here and you still have your doubts. But according to the Bible, you're not alone in your doubts. Even the disciples of Jesus, those who lived closely alongside of him and saw him walk on water and turn water into wine and raise dead people to life and still a storm and feed thousands of people with a small amount of bread and fish would say things like this. Matthew 28, 17. Even as he stands there resurrected, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now Thomas... John 20, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Unbelieving Thomas is in all of us. Knowing this, Jesus provides evidence for his resurrection miracle to assure us. In Luke's gospel, for example, we're told that Jesus himself stood among his disciples, Luke 24. They were startled and frightened, and Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled, and why, why does doubt arise in your hearts? Here, Jesus invites his disciples to doubt their doubts and helps them by engaging their senses. See my hands and my feet. This is I myself. Touch me. See, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Based on such encounters with Jesus, Peter would later write, 2 Peter 1, 16, we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Similarly, John would say in 1 John 1, 1 to 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we've seen it, we testify to it. The 12 disciples became so convinced of Jesus' resurrection that all but two of them, Judas and John, would later die as martyrs for the faith. As one writer said, people will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true. But people won't die for their, their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false. While most people can only have faith that their beliefs are true, the disciples were in a position to know without a doubt whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. They claimed that they saw him, talk with him, and ate with him. If they weren't absolutely certain... They wouldn't have allowed themselves to be tortured to death for proclaiming that the resurrection had happened. See, that makes 
this utterly unique form of martyrdom. See, we will see martyrs today who will die for a faith they have never seen. But what kind of disciples would die for a faith they have seen if that faith were false? They had seen them. They were with them, and they died. The disciples were in the unique position of knowing that if they had truly encountered the risen Christ or not, if the disciples were purveyors of a conspiracy that they knew wasn't true, and then they submitted to their own horrific deaths, they did so for a known lie. The more rational explanation is that they actually witnessed the resurrected Christ and staked their lives on his testimony. The Gospels also cite how Mary Magdalene, a former demoniac and likely prostitute, was the very first witness to Jesus' resurrection. No one would have taken seriously the testimony of a woman like her. According to Jewish historian Josephus, a woman's testimony would not have even been admissible in a court of law. Celsus, a second century critic of Christianity, mocked and discredited Mary Magdalene as, quote, a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. If the gospel writers were merely trying to build a tight case for the appearance of Jesus after the resurrection, they would not have inserted the irreputable Mary Magdalene as the first eyewitness. There's only one reason why the gospel writers would have mentioned such a discredited source. It actually happened that way. And the truth of this claim does not rest upon the one who bears witness to it. Because ultimately it will be Jesus bearing witness to every heart who comes to believe in him. If you believe in him and have received his truth, it's because he bore witness to his truth into your own heart. He himself, by the Holy Spirit, did it. So brothers and sisters, as I conclude, as his followers, let us be people of the truth. It won't be easy, though. In his final essay to the Russian people before his exile from his home nation, Alexander Solzhenitsyn offered a way forward. He said, we must at the very least commit ourselves to, quote, personal non-participation in lies. He said, quote, though lies may conceal everything, though lies may control everything, we should be obstinate about this one small point. Let them be in control, but without any help from any of us. It is the easiest thing for us to do and the most destructive for the lies. Because when people renounce lies, it cuts short their existence. Let us each make a choice whether to remain consciously a servant of falsehood or to shrug off the lies and become an honest man worthy of respect from one's children and contemporaries. Solzhenitsyn warns, quote, it will not be the same for everybody at first. Some will lose their jobs, but there are no loopholes, either truth or falsehood. If we are too frightened, then we should stop complaining that we are being suffocated. We are doing this to ourselves. If you stand for Jesus, then you must stand for the truth. The Oxford Dictionary, 2016, word of the year may be post-truth, but there's no such thing as a post-truth world or a post-truth society. There are only those who ignore the truth and those who seek to bring themselves in line with it. There is such a thing as truth. Jesus came to bear witness to it. Everyone who is of the truth listens to him and we be found among that number let's pray father we are so thankful to you that you are the god of all truth that you came to tell us the truth truth about ourselves truth that all of us at various levels have resisted 
and truth that by your grace you have overcome in so many of our lives by helping us to convince, by convincing us by your Holy Spirit that we were people of a lie, that we were living a lie. We were living a life that was like you didn't exist, was like you didn't rise from the dead, was like that Christmas was an insignificant thing that was just to be appreciated once a year. But Lord, you, by your grace, made Christmas the central reality of our lives. You made it our only hope. You made it the joy of our souls. You made it our everything. Because gift-wrapped to us on that morning was the truth himself, who came to bear witness to the truth that we are sinners and that we are in need of a Savior. You shall call his name Jesus. Call his name this, because this will communicate the truth. He came to save his people from their sins. Lord, your truth is re reflected in your very own name. You came to save us from our sins. We are sinners in need of saving. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came for such as those such as us. And any among us this morning who have yet to see you, who are living a lie, Lord, would you make them people of the truth? Would you bring them into your kingdom of truth? Would you reign in their hearts and lives by the power of your omnipotent Holy Spirit? And would you make us true children of God? Children who don't overcome the light with darkness, but children who have been overcome in our darkness by the light the true light that enlightens everyone coming into the world. Enlighten us this morning. Shed your light abroad in our hearts. Give us new lives in Christ and renew our lives in Christ and cause us to walk and run in the way of truth. Not just for the sake of some proposition, but for the sake of a person. For the sake of the person that we want to represent. Lord, we acknowledge that we so often fail. We're not the people of the truth that we need to be. We have, in fact, even as your people at times, contributed to the lie. Forgive us. Heal us. Restore us. Lord, make us to be people who live according to the truth and walk according to the truth. Lord Jesus, thank you for bearing witness to it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand.